Now on a full night like this, I promise not to keep you too long. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Psalm 1. If you don't have your Bibles, turn on to Psalm 1. Because just about everyone has a phone with a Bible on. Psalm 1. I'm going to read it in a few moments. And as I read it, there are some things I want you to look for. Psalm 1, what God himself has placed at the beginning of the entire Psalter. Psalm 1 is a psalm that contrasts the righteous and the unrighteous. That's what it's about. In verses 1 to 3, you will see the righteous are described. In verses 4 to 5, the unrighteous are described. And in verse 6, there is a final summarizing contrast. Now that's the basic outline of the psalm, and you will observe it as I read it. But we will focus special attention on verse 2 this evening, uh, as part of these anniversary celebrations, for reasons that will become clear in a few moments. Hear then what Holy Scripture says. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. So the righteous person is described in verses 1, 2, and 3. In verse 1, the righteous person is described negatively, that is, what they're not like. In verse 2, they're described positively, what they are like. And in verse 3, they're described metaphorically. Let's take a look at those verses one by one. Verse 1, the righteous person described negatively. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers. That's what they're not like. You can't help but feel the action slowing down. Wicked people start off by walking in step with the counsel of the wicked. They're picking up bad advice and they're stepping out on the basis of it. They're aligned with this bad counsel. And if they keep at that long enough, they stand in the way of sinners, to use older translations. 
But to stand in somebody's way in English means something different from what standing in someone's way means in Hebrew. So it's a bit misleading. To stand in someone's way in English means you block them. Those of us with older memories think of Robin Hood and Little John on the bridge. Each stands in the other's way. One of them's going to end in the drink. But to stand in someone's way in Hebrew means to stand in their moccasins, to do what they do, to adopt their lifestyle, which is why the translation I'm using has stand in the way that sinners take. You start off by following the bad advice and pretty soon you adopt the lifestyle. You, you stand where they stand. You, you walk where they walk. You do what they do. And if you do that long enough, then the danger is sliding to the third line. They sit in the company of mockers. Now you sit in your easy chair, pull the lever, and your feet come up in the air, and you look down your long, self-righteous nose at those stupid, ignorant, right-wing, bigoted, narrow-minded little fundamentalist Christians. <laughs> no opprobrium is bad enough. Well, I used to think that, you know, when I was a, a young man, I went to a sort of fundamentalist church, but, but I've grown up beyond that now. You can almost feel the sneering, oozing contempt. At this point, Spurgeon says, a man receives his masters in worthlessness and his doctorate in damnation. And God says, right at the beginning, blessed is the one who's not like that. Which presupposes that you don't pursue the counsel of the wicked. You're not eager to stand in the way of sinful people. And you will be careful to avoid all sneering contempt. So we come to the second verse. The righteous person positively described. Now I have to say something about poetry. I was brought up in a generation many, many decades ago where it was expected that school students memorized poetry. We memorized reams of it. We found that there were different kinds of poetry. Anyone lived in a little hub town without so many floating balls down? E. Cummings. Nobody reads E. Cummings anymore. Let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediment. Love is not love which alters when an alteration finds or bends with a remover to remove. No, tis an ever fixed mark that looks on stars and is never shaken. Shakespeare, Sonnet 116. <laughs> when I see birches sway to left and right across the line of straighter, darker trees, I like to think some boy's been swinging them, but swinging doesn't bend them down to stay. Ice storms do that. Ooh, that's clever. So many different forms of poetry in the English language that depend on sway, or mood, or word choice, or rhythm, or beat, rhyme. But Hebrew poetry doesn't work like any of those things. Oh, there's some of those bits thrown in here and there, but that's not the heart of Hebrew poetry. The heart of Hebrew poetry is parallelism. Quite a lot of different kinds of parallelism. You see it already in verse 1, don't you? Blessed is... The one who does not do this, does not do that, does not do the other. In some ways, they're all parallel. In some ways, it's ratcheting up a little in intensity. You see? So when you come to verse 2, 
and you are looking for the positive alternative, then what you'd expect, if you're following parallelism, is something like this. Blessed, rather, is the one who walks in the counsel of the godly, who stands in the way that righteous people take, and who sit in the seat of the praising. Now that would be a good verse too, if you're following the pattern of Hebrew parallelism. But it's not what God gives us. That's why verse 2 is so interesting. Instead of giving us the obvious parallelism that Hebrew poetry demands, God breaks the pattern. What that has the effect of doing is drawing all our attention to, oh, what's going on here? Why is this parallel? Broken. What does he say? Verse 2. How is the righteous person described positively? Blessed, rather, are those whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. It's a way of saying, if you've got this, you've got the whole package. If you've got this, then you've got the counsel of the righteous. If you've got this such that it's your delight, it will establish you in the way of godliness. And there's no way you'll slunk down into sneering contempt if your mind's full of the law of the Lord and you're meditating on it, meditating on it day and night. When I first started teaching at Trinity in 1978, 37 years ago, we had on faculty at the time an old man who taught homiletics, that is the art and science of preaching. His name was Lloyd Perry. Lloyd Perry was given to one-liners. Some of them are still worth repeating. Most of them are eminently forgettable. But some of them are wonderful. One of his favorites was, you're not what you think you are, but what you think you are. And of course, that really is a summary of a proverb. As a man thinketh in his heart, the King James Version has it, so is he. In other words, you're not just what you eat. You're not just what you say. You're not just what you do, but you are what you think. It's a bit like computers, garbage in, garbage out. Worse yet, we produce our own garbage. So that inevitably, when men and women really are transformed by the gospel, they think differently. Isn't that what the Apostle Paul says? Don't be conformed to this world, Romans chapter 12, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that renewal of the mind, according to this verse, turns on Scripture, on the Word of God, on the law of the Lord. Remind yourself of some of the many texts that say this sort of thing. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By taking heed according to your word. Psalm 119, 9. Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light to my path. 
Hebrews 4, 12 and 13, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. 2 Peter 1, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own understanding of things, for prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy 3, all Scripture is God-breathed, useful for a long list of things. Think of what the Lord Jesus says on the night that he is betrayed. He prays, sanctify them through your truth, your word. Is truth. And that means that one of the responsibilities and joys of every generation is to spend time in the Word of God. It, it, it has to be more than quickly reading a couple of Bible verses somewhere between slipping on your socks and sipping your orange juice before you beat it out the back door on the way to work. It's the kind of thing instead where this word is your delight. His delight is in the law of the Lord and he meditates on his law day and night. Did you ever come in after a hard day and think, I know I had my devotions this morning, but I think I just would like to read some more Bible. It's so good to read. That would indicate that your delight is in the law of the Lord. Or do you come in and say, well, I've done my reading for the day, and I'm pious enough. Now I'll read the hockey scores. <laughs> or dress design. Or car monthly. Whatever you like. When is it just fun to pick up the Bible and say, you know, this month I think I'm going to memorize a chapter. Because what God wants us to do is to meditate on it day and night. To meditate on it presupposes that you've got it in there to meditate on. So that when your mind goes into neutral at a stoplight, that's the day part. Or when you wake up halfway between being wide awake and half asleep. Where, in both cases, does your mind naturally go? You meditate on it, day and night. And it utterly transforms. So there's a righteous person described negatively, verse one. And it is sufficient to describe the same righteous person positively by reference to the word of God, verse 2. Because when you stop to think of it, this word gives us all that we need along these lines. It doesn't teach us nuclear physics. It doesn't teach us molecular biology. It doesn't take us, teach us a legal system. But it teaches us all you need to live before God in this life and in the life to come. Where did you learn about Jesus and his substitutionary death? In the Bible. Where did you learn about the nature of holiness before God? In the Bible. Where did you learn about the gift of the Holy Spirit? In the Bible. 
Where do you learn the rudiments of Christian ethics? In the Bible. Where do you learn about what God thinks regarding human marriage? In the Bible. Where do you learn about heaven and hell? In the Bible. Where do you learn about the resurrection of Jesus? In the Bible. Where is it promised that he is the first fruits of the general resurrection and we too will one day have resurrection bodies like his resurrection body? In the Bible. Where do you learn about the life of the church? In the Bible. What gives you preparation for resurrection existence in a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness? Well, it's the Bible. And on and on and on. Can you imagine anything more important than that? His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Then the righteous person is described metaphorically. Listen to this language. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. As I'm sure you know, the land of Israel is semi-arid. So you can go to parts of Israel where everything looks green and wonderful in the early rains and the latter rains, but in between the two, um, everything looks like desert. It's brown, it's dead, there's no fruit, there's, there's just nothing. Then the rains come and everything springs up again and there's color and there's greenery and so on. Then the rains end again and everything looks dead, just like some Christians. Given the right set of circumstances, they could look alive, wonderful, and green. Sometimes, quite frankly, they look like death warmed over, <laughs> dark, no fruit, no sign of vitality anywhere. But this person is carefully transplanted by a confluence of streams, plural. So if one dries up, no, no problem, there are others. Carefully planted, not just happen to be growing there, but planted, that is, by God himself, carefully planted by a confluence of streams such that there is always life. The leaf is always green. And, and in the right season, it brings forth fruit. That's what the text says. Who are these people? Like trees planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. This imagery keeps recurring in the Old Testament. Here, for example, is Jeremiah, the prophet, in chapter 17. Jeremiah 17. Listen to the same contrast. This is what the Lord says, 17.5. Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who draws strength from mere flesh, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. That person will be like a bush in the wastelands. They will not see prosperity when it comes. They will dwell in the parched places of the desert, in a salt land where no one lives. But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. Do, do you see the contrast? And in the flow of the psalm, the nourishing water that gives greenery and fruit is God's word. And that's what the righteous person is like. What's the unrighteous person like? Verse 4. This begins in the original with a powerful negative. 
if I were translating it a little loosely, but to get the point across, I'd say something like this. Not so the wicked. Not so. It's very powerful. As if to say, anything that you want to say about the righteous person, you've got to deny to the unrighteous person. Do the righteous people avoid the counsel of ungodly people? Not so the wicked. Not so. Do righteous people avoid taking up the lifestyle of those who are profoundly ungodly? Not so the wicked. Not so. Do righteous people avoid sinking into contempt for other people? Not so the wicked. Not so. Do righteous people love the word of God and meditate on it day and night? Not so the wicked. Not so. Are the righteous people like trees carefully planted by streams of water which produce fruit in good season and always show green life? Not so the wicked. Not so. Well, what are they like then? The text says, they're like chaff that the wind blows away. That is, in contrast to the tree, which is rooted, the chaff is rootless. In contrast to the tree, which has life, the chaff is dead. In contrast to the tree, which takes up life-giving water, the chaff takes up nothing. In contrast to the tree which brings forth fruit in its season, chaff produces no fruit whatsoever. It just is blown away. And if you say to me, yeah, well, Don, that's not the way it is in my world. In my world, there are lots of evil people I could point you to who are doing quite well, thank you. They're prospering. They're, 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 they're having a pretty wonderful time. It's, it's a lot of the believers I know that are facing really hard times. And I would say, your horizon's too small. 50 billion years from now, no one is going to be writing a doctoral dissertation on the significance of Adolf Hitler. He's just blown away. But every single person in this room who's ever given a cup of cold water in the name of the Lord Jesus will still be celebrated. And in case we don't see that that's the point, verse 5 makes it clear. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. And verse 6 gives a final summarizing contrast. It's not a contrast strictly between the righteous and the unrighteous, but between the way of the righteous and the way of the unrighteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, that is, he watches over it, he protects it, he owns it as his. But the way of the wicked leads to destruction. It perishes. So here we are, Psalm 1, introducing the entire Psalter. There are just two ways to live. And there is no third. But I really must say one more thing. Did you see, if that's all I were to say, you might well turn to me and say, well, Don, is that the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian? <laughs> Close, but no cigar. 
It's a description between the righteous person and the unrighteous person, but I don't hear a lot of grace in this song. Moreover, I hear absolute polarity when most of our experience reflects a little more complicated analysis. Let me put it this way. Two ways to live in this song. Which one are you in? Go on, which one are you in? It's complicated, isn't it? If you were really a self-righteous, insufferable person, you might think, I'm with the righteous myself. <laughs> or if you have a sensitive conscience, you look at this and you think, boy, I really don't fit in that righteous crowd. I must be in the unrighteous crowd. And then you're under the judgment of God. You don't stand in the assembly. In other words, this sort of polarized analysis of human conduct leads people either to self-righteousness or to utter despair. Moreover, there are lots and lots of places in the Bible where there is more nuance. So there's David, a man after God's own heart, who manages to commit adultery and murder. Which one was he in here? There's Abraham, the father of the faithful, one of only two men in scripture called the friend of God. He managed to be such a liar that he gets his wife into deep trouble. Twice! He doesn't even learn from the first lesson. Then there's Moses, the meekest man who ever lives, losing his temper and not being permitted to enter into the promised land. And oh yes, by the way, he was a murderer in his youth. Then there's Peter, mighty Peter, the Peter of Pentecost. Peter, the great confession in Caesarea Philippi, swearing on oath more than once that he never knew Jesus. And even after the resurrection and the bestowal of the Spirit, he gets his theology so mucked up that the Apostle Paul has to correct him in Galatians 2. And he's Peter! So was he in channel 1 or channel 2 here? Do you see... What I am saying is that the Bible as a whole contains many, many, many passages like Psalm 1, where the absolutes are absolutely drawn, not only in certain wisdom psalms, that's what this is, wisdom tends to say this way, not that way, it's absolute, but in so-called apocalyptic literature, you either have the mark of the beast on your head or you have the mark of the lamb on your head, according to Revelation chapter 19. Those who have the mark of the Lamb will face the wrath of the beast, but the protection of the Lamb. Those who have the mark of the beast will face the wrath of the Lamb, but will be secured in some measure by the beast. The question is, whose wrath do you want to face? Do you want to face somebody's wrath? So what sign do you want on your forehead? But it's an absolute division, don't you see? And Jesus himself sometimes preaches with these absolute divisions. Think of the way the Sermon on the Mount ends. You can build your house on two kinds of ground. Sand or rock. Build it on rock, dig deep, blast away, put in deep footings. Then when the storms come through, the wind blows, that, that house is solid. It will not be moved. Or you can build it on sand. 
beautiful sheep, get it up there fast. The first nasty storm that comes is blown away. So how do you want to build a house? This way or that way? Those are the only choices. And you are not allowed to say, uh, excuse me, uh, I don't like sand. I don't like rock because it's too expensive. Sand is not secure enough. I'm going to choose hard pan clay. You can't do that. Jesus doesn't offer you that option. Broad is the gate. Wide is the way that leads to destruction. Many go in there. Narrow is the gate. Straight is the way that leads to life. Few go in there. And you can't come along and say, uh, I'd like an in-between size, please. Not, 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 not too narrow, not, not too straight, not, not too wide, not too licentious, not, not really morally disgusting, but <laughs> on the edge of it, because that's fun. You can't do that. You have one or the other. Jesus can often preach like that. And yet the Bible is still full of all of these people who are morally compromised, like you and me. How do you put that together? You see, you really must have the absolutes. And you really must have the narratives that explain the complications. You must have both. You must have the absolutes, because if we didn't have those, we'd hear the story of David and his adultery and murder. We'd hear that story and we'd say to ourselves, well, if, if David commits sins like that, not too surprising if I do too, you know? And we'd learn exactly the wrong thing from the story. What keeps us from tumbling down that relativistic path? The absolutes of Scripture. But if all you had was the absolutes of Scripture, and you didn't have the integrity of real people, like a real David, or a real Demas, who, who walks with the apostles and is indifferentiable from, from them and their mission, and then ends up selling it all to get a little more money in this world. Unless you have stories like that, you, you, you fail to realize that the world is not made up of good guys and bad guys, absolutely good guys and absolutely bad guys. The world is made up of broken, sinful people who by God's common grace can do wonderful things but still fall short of the glory of God and who by saving grace may actually be producing a lot of fruit and then go and produce some poison fruit. And where on earth is that going to get so good? The truth of the matter is both of these accounts pummel their way through Scripture. These absolutes like Psalm 1 and then these stories of moral failure and overarching over both of them are the promises of God to look forward to a coming Redeemer. Until finally you find the demand for holiness and the promise of wrath where there isn't any holiness and the promise of God's redemption and his love and, 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 and forgiveness even for the worst of sinners pummeling right through the Old Testament narrative into the New Testament narrative and then they meet climactically at the cross. And righteousness and peace kiss each other. Brothers and sisters, we need someone to show us what the standards God wants are. We need someone to remind ourselves not to listen to ungodly counsel. We need someone to show us that what we must have is the word of God percolating in our minds and hearts. 
but someone won't save anybody. It'll either make you a self-righteous hypocrite or it'll show you your guilt. Because the law in its absolutes is not able to save. It's not its function. It's not its purpose. But in the sweep of God's purposes, you get the glory of holiness and fruitfulness and, 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 and a righteous life held up before you. But the demand is not the promise. The demand doesn't transform. What you need finally is God in his grace forgiving our sins. Because Christ bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So that when we sin, when we see these high demands, we don't say, well, well, I'm great on the curve and then I'll be all right. I know some people are bigger sinners than I am. No, no, you leave those absolutes in place and you go back to the cross and you say again and again, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And ask for the power and grace of the gospel of God mediated through the Holy Spirit to grow us into growing conformity to Christ so that we can look back and see that we may not yet be what we want to be, but we, 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 were, we are not what we were. And we press on toward the hope that is ours. Resurrection existence, the home of righteousness. I don't know if you've heard the story of the man who wrote Amazing Grace, John Newton. He was a slave trader across the Atlantic. He estimated that when he was a slave ship master, he transported something like 20,000 slaves across the Atlantic. He said later, after he became a Christian, that when he had nightmares, he could still hear their screams. He was an evil, hard-living man. Eventually, he was converted. Eventually became pastor of the little church in Aldi, England, where he wrote the hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Toward the end of his life, he wrote words of this effect. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what one day I will be. But I am not what I was. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. That falls out of the gospel and the Bible's overarching storyline. Now Psalm 1 makes sense. Let us pray. I pray for the brothers and sisters of Calvary Baptist Church that you will give them such a hunger for your most holy word that almost unknowingly they will learn to meditate on it day and night. I pray that you will make them like trees planted by streams of water, always showing the life of the word in their lives, the greenery of life and in your own timing, bearing fruit. Bearing fruit in transformed existence. Bearing fruit in men and women genuinely converted. Bearing fruit in holiness. Bearing fruit in 
increasing likeness to Christ Jesus. I pray, Lord God, that you will bring them to the cross again and again. And if there are some who have invited here this evening for whom all of this still seems vaguely foreign, even strange, will you not show them, even by this song, that you have standards so far beyond us that we are ashamed we cannot meet them and utterly incapable of doing so. You are the God of grace who provided a way of escape who, in the person of your dear Son, bears our guilt and blame and in consequence declares us not guilty. Grant, Lord God, that such persons in this assembly will, even where they sit, lift their hearts heavenward and cry, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. For Jesus' sake, amen.